calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. You're listening to Inherited Danger, book two of the Dawning of Power trilogy, a podcast novel written and read by Brian Rathbone. For more information, maps, and additional downloads, visit brianrathbone.com. Thank you for listening. Chapter 10 The stench of fear can be cleansed only by eliminating its source. Dotmar Khan, Assassin The feel of cold metal against her skin was the most frightening thing Katrin had ever experienced. But she was not cut or stabbed, and none of her blood was shed. She kept her eyes closed and her breaths shallow as the blades glided across her taut flesh. Starting with her eyebrows, they carefully and skillfully shaved her. Cool air brushed the newly exposed skin left in their wake. Bits of loose hair tickled her face, but she was afraid to flinch as her mind filled with visions of sharp blades biting deep. Her hair fell away silently, without pain or struggle, but Katrin felt as if she were being assaulted. The robed women continued their ministrations until her head was completely shaved. Upon completing their task, they helped Katrin stand. After helping her undress, they wrapped her in a warm, soft robe. When not bearing knives, the women seemed much less threatening. She sensed empathy and caring from them, and when they led her through a door in the opposite wall, she followed with a mixture of anticipation and wonder. They emerged into a long corridor, lined with doors on both sides, all of which were closed. Darkness shrouded the far end of the hall, hiding what lay beyond. The women approached the first door on her left, and it opened silently with the slightest push. The hallway beyond was dimly lit by the reddish glow of a small fire. Around a bend was what looked like a natural rock formation though many of its features appeared to have been shaped by skillful hands. Pools of clear water filled the room, a haze of steam shifting above them. Near the edge of the largest pool stood another stone table, but this one was topped with a soft pad. The women silently instructed her to disrobe and climb atop the table. 
and Katrin did so with less inhibition than she would have expected. Her embarrassment dissipated, and she found it liberating. When she lay on the table, though, a chill tightened her flesh, and she wished for a blanket or something to cover her. Looking about, she saw the women using wooden tongs to remove a variety of smooth stones from the steaming water. They lined the stones along the pool's edge and, using their slender fingers, appeared to test the temperature of each. When they were satisfied with each stone, they placed them under and around her with care. Katrin reveled in the heat emanating from the stones, which were now in her palms, under her feet, and behind her neck, and still more were coming. Soon, Katrin wished she were wearing some sort of clothing just so she could take something off. The heat permeated her skin and soaked into her body. Sweat poured from her, and she wondered if she would shrivel into a dried husk. But she continued to shed water, beads of sweat sliding down her face and the length of her body. As the stones cooled, the women replaced them with hot ones. The purge was intense, and Katrin licked her parched lips. As they removed the stones and returned them to the hot pool, the women brought basins of water that had been soaking in the hot pools. They dipped soft cloths in the water and cleansed the sweat from Katrin's body. As they helped her up, she grew dizzy, but the spell soon passed. She donned her soft robe again and gratefully accepted a large mug of water. It was cool and sweet and tasted delicious. One of the women guided her back to the hall, then walked straight to the opposite door. It led to a small room that contained only a sleeping pallet and a chamber pot. The other woman arrived a moment later with a pitcher of water and a mug. Then they left, closing the door behind themselves. Left alone with her thoughts, Katrin spent the rest of the day in quiet reflection, trying to ignore the pangs of hunger. In the oppressive heat of the forge building, the cold and snow seemed like a distant dream. Sweat rolled into Strom's eyes as they waited for the molten blob within the crucible to reach what Gustad considered the optimal consistency. Do you really think we can do this? Osborne asked. Don't know, Strom said. Milo said we just needed steady hands, and I suppose we have that. So much work has gone into making the glass. I don't want to ruin it. No worries, my boy. Milo said from across the room. You boys are just what we need to achieve the perfect pour. Practice it may take, but you will succeed. Of that I am confident. See, Strom said. Milo believes in us. Yeah, Osborne said, his voice barely above a whisper. But that's coming from someone who sets himself on fire at least once a day. He hasn't gone up in flames today, Strom countered. The day is young yet. Gustad bent down to peer into the small opening in the furnace, admiring the molten glass in the crucible. I believe we are ready to pour, he said. Remember, the key is slow and steady, and you must increase the rate of your pour as you reach the bottom of the crucible. Understand? 
Strom and Osborne nodded, though Strom wondered if his confidence were misplaced. He certainly had no reason to believe he and Osborne were capable of a task that required such precision, but he was determined to try. Steady now, Gustad said as they slowly eased the crucible out of the furnace, their arms hidden within long, thick leather gloves. Despite their efforts, hot coals clung to the crucible and fell to the floor. Don't let any coals drop into the mold, Milo said, his eyes wide with excitement. Hurry now, Gustad said. We must not let the glass cool. Begin the pour. Slow and steady, boys. Slow and steady. Strom tried to keep his hands from trembling, but the pressure was on him. Osborne's task was simply to balance the long pouring rod while Strom regulated the rate of pour. Slowly, he began to tip the crucible. Like heated tree sap, the molten wax oozed from the crucible, and Strom tried to ignore the sweat that was seeping into his eyes. Easy now, nice and slow, Milo said, moving closer to inspect the pour, his long robes gliding across the floor. Increase the flow, Gustad said after most of the glass had left the crucible. Only a small amount remained. Steady now. Steady. Squinting, Strom tried his best, but his eyes burned and the crucible wobbled slightly. Blast, Gustad said. So very close. You nearly had it. Put the pouring rod and crucible back on the rack. After replacing the rod, Strom turned and shook his head. Milo, he said. Milo ignored him as he examined the glass cooling in the mold. Not bad, he said. Almost as good as what we've accomplished on our own. Only a few bubbles. If only my hands did not shake with age. We could have done this a dozen times. Milo, Strom said more forcefully while trying to catch up with the monk who now paced the floor. I wonder if we change the shape of the crucible so we don't have to increase the rate of pour so dramatically. Milo! What is it, my boy? Milo asked, suddenly sniffing the air. You're on fire again. The next morning brought two more robed figures, and Katrin sensed they were not the same women from the day before. But women they were. Acquainting herself with the aura of each robed figure, Katrin became more adept at the process. Using only her senses, she examined the robed figures with no apparent reaction from her subjects. But she kept her investigations brief and cursory, not wanting her exploration to be discovered again. They led her down the hall, past several doors, and picked a door seemingly at random. It led to a man-made chamber that housed another large stone slab, but this slab differed from the others in that it had a large cavity hollowed out of its base, which was filled with glowing red embers. The women helped Katrin from her robe and motioned for her to climb atop the table. Katrin ran her hand across the slab. It was quite warm. She seated herself on the end of the table and lay back slowly. 
The stone seemed too hot on her skin at first, but as she eased herself down, the intensity seemed to lessen. Both women sorted through a tray of small vials. Then they anointed her with hot oils. Each drop brought its own unique sensation, and a variety of pungent smells assaulted her senses. The mixture was heady, and it nearly gave Katrin a headache. But as she relaxed, the pain subsided. As the women massaged the oils into her skin, she relaxed further. Kinks in her stiff muscles seemed to melt, and she was amazed by how many places were sore. She'd felt fine before she lay down, but the women worked knotted and sore muscles she had been completely unaware of. They brought her water and gave her time to drink. When Katrin had had her fill, they motioned for her to lie back down, and she complied without complaint. The massage treatment had been wonderful, leaving her feeling limber and relaxed. She wasn't certain what to expect when they returned to her side, each holding some sort of narrow cone that was as long as her arm and appeared to be made of waxed cloth. After inserting the small ends of the cones into Katrin's ears, they placed her hands around them, making it clear she was to hold them in place. Katrin had begun to expect unusual things during the ritual, but she could not imagine what would come next. They returned, each holding a long piece of dried reed. They knelt down, and when they stood, the ends of the reeds were afire. Katrin nearly shrieked when the women lowered the flaming reeds toward the wax cones. Instinctively, she thought of her hair and then realized she no longer had any. Tilting the cones forward, she saw flames dancing on the ends of the cones from the corner of her vision. But the waxed cloth burned slowly. A strange but not unpleasant sensation filled her ears, and she laughed. The hooded women just stood and watched the wax cones burn, but Katrin sensed their mirth. I know you're smiling under those hoods, she said, and she stuck her tongue out at them. While they showed no visible reaction, she could almost feel their mental laughter, which made her smile. She tried to relax and trust the women not to set her head on fire, but it was difficult, and she was glad when they removed the burning cones from her ears. Within the halls of Adderhold, he stood, the boy with no tongue. He watched as liveried servants prepared a banquet, but he knew it for what it was a trap. Soon the nobles would arrive, dressed in finery and expecting to be treated as honored guests, and so some would be. But for others, there awaited a surprise. Keeping to the shadows, the nameless boy watched and waited, knowing there was nothing he could do to gain his freedom or to preserve the freedom of others. He was powerless, a slave capable of little more than serving his master, and to this fate he resigned himself. There was no one who cared for him. No one would come to rescue him from this prison of flesh and bone. He was alone, now and for the rest of his days. With a sigh, 
he moved through the dark corridors known to only a few and made his way to the banquet hall. Standing behind scarlet curtains with gilded trim, he hid, hoping no one would remember he existed. Once he had been brash and proud, but now all he wanted was to be left alone, to be forgotten. As the guests began to arrive, he watched, waiting to see who would show the signs. His heart beating faster with every arriving noble, he almost dared to hope, almost convinced himself that none would have real power. When the nobles began to take their seats and the servants served the first dishes, it seemed his wishes had been granted. But he knew better. Nothing he had ever wished for had really come true, and he had no reason to believe things would change now. When servants rushed to escort a late arrival to the hall, he was not surprised to see a nimbus of power around the man they led. Dressed in lavish colors and bejeweled raiment, the man stood tall and proud. This was a man accustomed to power, both physical and political but it was obvious he knew nothing of his real power, the very thing that made him, in this case, most vulnerable. With a sudden sigh, the nameless boy retreated, not needing to see any more. He knew what was to come, and he could only lament. He was powerless. A slave. That night, Katrin was led to a large room, most of which was taken up by a huge stone basin filled near to capacity with a colorful array of rounded and polished stones. Two pitchers of water and a jar for drinking were also present in the room, along with a few other amenities. On the edge of the rock basin was a single red rose. Her guides gave her no indication why it was there. Instead, as they left, They wordlessly instructed her to sleep in the stone basin. Her thirst unquenchable, Katrin drained one of the jars before approaching the basin. The rose drew her closer, and she inhaled its fragrance, felt the texture of the petals with her lips, and marveled over the bead of moisture hidden within its folds. It was surprising how enamored she could become with a rose something she had walked by a hundred times without really noticing. But here, in her isolation taken out of its context, the rose was a magnificent work of art. Soft, red petals stood out in contrast to the emerald stem with its brownish thorns. It seemed a magical thing. As she climbed into the strange basin, the stones were cool against her skin. The more she moved, the deeper she became submerged in the rainbow of spheres. She saw topaz, turquoise, black onyx, and a host of others she could not identify. The energy of the stones surrounded her, and she basked in it. Each type had its own unique energy, much in the same way each type of living creature had its own signature. Turning the basin into a game of sorts, Katrin wiggled her feet through the stones, grabbing at random with her toes. Then, using only her impression of the stone and her physical contact with it, she tried to identify what kind it was. 
For those whose names she did not know, she made up names such as Pretty Red and Purple Swirly. Within a short time, she could correctly identify four out of five stones without looking at them. As enjoyable as she found her little game, she paused and took time to simply bask in their energy. Within moments of quieting her mind, she slept. Please, Lord Jaharadin, do come in and sit with me, Archmaster Belegra said. Thank you, Archmaster. You honor me. Ikari Jaharadin replied as he eased himself into one of the chairs near the fire. The upholstery was far too gaudy for his taste, but the deep cushions were softer than they appeared, and the chair seemed to suck him in, as if it were consuming him alive. It was a feeling that left him on edge. While an audience with the Archmaster was indeed an honor, Ikari couldn't shake the feeling that he was in grave danger. Still, he could not resist the opportunity to bring greater standing and wealth to his family. Not that declining was an option. To do so would be too great an insult. He had seen what happened to families that displeased the Archmaster, and he had no wish to find himself working in the fields or rotting in a dungeon. My mother sends her respects and asks that I extend an invitation to our humble... Yes, of course she did. Archmaster Belegra said, his eyes narrowing and a feral grin crossing his face. Your mother is a weathered hag, and I'd sooner wallow with the pigs than dine in your hall. You are here for a reason, Ikari, and that reason is not to flatter me. Ikari could not have been more shocked, though he did what he could to conceal his reaction. Still... Archmaster Belegra chuckled and leveled a finger at him. What would you do for me, Ikari? Tell me, what would you do? Squirming in the chair that now seemed a prison, Ikari wanted to flee, but his limbs would not respond. Trying desperately to find words, he found his mouth working of its own accord. I would die. For you, he said involuntarily. Tilting his head back, Archmaster Belegra erupted in laughter that held no joy. Of course you would, my servant. Of course you would. It was an unusual awakening, as stones fell from Katrin's face and cheeks when she raised her head. Some defied gravity for a moment, clinging to her skin, as if they had become embedded in her flesh. Standing slowly, she brushed off the few tenacious stones that still adhered to her, and laughed at the strange patterns left on her skin by the stones. She looked almost reptilian, as if she had scales. The effect did not last long, though, and her skin returned to its normal state. Wondering how soon the monks would arrive, she climbed free of the basin. When she went for a mug of water, she noticed that the pitchers had been refilled, and she wondered if this were a subtle hint. It became obvious later that the monks would not return for her that day. 
and she decided to spend her day napping and amusing herself. One of her naps ran into the next morning. That concludes this episode of Inherited Danger. Thank you for listening. For the latest news and new releases, be sure to check out patioracket.com.